I just want to start today and just talk about a guy probably all of you know, and that's Michael Phelps, the swimmer who became the most decorated Olympic athlete of all time. He has won 28 medals across four Olympics. He holds the record for most Olympic gold medals with 23. At the, 2000, at the 2008 Beijing Olympics, he won eight gold medals and broke Mark Spitz's, my generation, probably some of you out there, Mark Spitz's 1972 record of seven gold medals at a single Olympic competition. So what kind of training do you think he had? Well, he would train almost six hours a day all year round. To maintain his weight and energy, he would need to consume 8,000 to 10,000 calories a day. An example of one of his breakfasts would be three fried egg sandwiches with cheese, tomatoes, lettuce, fried onions, and my wife's favorite, mayonnaise. But, but he would follow these up with three chocolate chip pancakes. After that, he would eat a five-egg omelet, three sugar-coated French toast, a bowl of grits, and two cups of coffee to wash it all down. I tell you this to show you what it looks like for this elite athlete to perform at the top of his game for so long. In an interview, he stated, eat, sleep, and swim. That's all I can do. During this time in his life, I'm sure he would tell us that swimming was his life. And by the way, if you think Michael Phelps' regimen is impressive, you should hear about Pastor Milton's breakfast prior to <laughs> preaching. He has the same breakfast as Phelps, along with two egg McMuffins and five egg burritos. It's truly amazing that he is such a lean, mean preaching machine. But it just goes to show you how many calories he burns every Sunday as he brings the word to us. But seriously, when we see someone that is dedicated to something, willing to give up all else for this one thing, we say that that thing is their life. Music is my life. My beauty is my life. My career is my life. This relationship is my life. Soccer, sorry World Cup fans, is my life. Everything else takes a back seat to this. To be the best at something, it does take focus and sacrifice. We think about it all day and we dream about it all night. Blank is my life. If we were to ask the Apostle Paul how he would fill in this blank, how do you think he would answer? Well, if you've read any of his letters in the New Testament, you know what his answer would be. He would say, Jesus Christ is my life. In fact, he does tell us his answer in Philippians 1.21, where he states, For to me, to live is Christ. I share this because in our passage today, in verse 4, Paul will say the same thing, saying that Christ is our life. But how would you fill in that blank? What would others say as they observe your life, how you fill in that blank? I think most of us would want to be able to say, Jesus Christ is my life. 
but we don't know how to do this. And I believe our passage today will help you know what you need to do. So please turn with me to Colossians 3. As we look at our passage for today, I want you to observe seven things you must do if you want Jesus Christ to be your life. But let me pray for us before we get started. Our Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks for today. We thank you for this time you've given us to be together. I thank you for the fellowship you bless us with here at Cornerstone. I pray today that you would use me as a straw for your people here just to send your truth to them. We thank you for your word, the power it has in our lives, and the power it has to make the simple wise. Make us wise this morning. Fill us with your spirit. We ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you look at your notes, the first thing that you'll want to do if you want Christ to be your life, number one, set your focus on Christ. Look at verses 1 to 4. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Now, at the end of chapter 2, Paul tells his readers to, to be done with the elementary principles of the world, which include worldly forms of religion that submits to the commandments of men. While such self-made forms of religion seem attractive, they ultimately have no power against our tendency to fleshly indulgence. Only Christ has that power. And because of the worthlessness of man-made religion, Paul says in verse 1, Therefore, if or since you have been raised up with Christ, and this was done at the moment of your salvation, keep seeking the things above where Christ is at. Well, a question would be, what are these things that are above where Christ is at? Well, in Colossians 2.3, Paul states what these things are. Speaking of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. When we seek the things above, we are seeking the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge found in Christ. Since we have been crucified with Christ and identified with his death and resurrection, we are spiritually united with him, and our thoughts and attitudes should be drawn upward where Christ is at, not downward to the things of the earth. As we travel through our earthly lives, we need to keep in mind that one glorious day, when Christ is revealed, we will be with him in glory. And now Paul mentions in verse 4, Christ, who is our life, as if this is an accepted fact. He doesn't build upon this fact, nor does he defend it. He states that this is true of all believers. When Christ is revealed, all believers will realize that Christ has been their life uh, has been their lives all along that everything in life has been orchestrated to bring Christ the most glory what paul is doing here is what any good teacher coach or parent would do he is reminding the believers of who they are in Christ and and what they have to look forward to i like to call it the correction sandwich as a coach, when I was in my coaching years, I would try to compliment an athlete 
before I told them something they needed to correct, and then would also try to leave them with some type of encouragement after the correction. I know you can do this, or this is what you need to bring out more of your greatness. And here in these verses, Paul is saying that since you have been raised up with Christ, and since you have been able to set your mind on the treasures of his wisdom and knowledge, and since you now have your life hidden in Christ, that is, it is secure with his hands holding you, and since you look forward to the day when you have a glorified body with Christ, live this way. Now, as a believer, I know that you may be frustrated with all the ways that you, fail, that you fall short in the here and now. But please be encouraged that in the eyes of God, your life is hidden in Christ. When the Father looks at you, he sees Christ. And be encouraged in the truth that one day you will be revealed with Christ in glory. And in that day, you will look just like him. Now give some thought to where you think Paul will go next with his thinking as he tells us to how to have a life in which Jesus is our life. If fitness was your life, you'd probably hire a personal trainer. And they wouldn't just give you some exercises to do and tell you what things to eat. They would also instruct you to get rid of some of the things in your life. I'm sure we would be told to cut down on our intake of sugar and empty carbohydrates. But oh, empty carbohydrates taste so good. But they would tell us to get rid of these because these types of foods would impede our progress. It is the same in the spiritual realm. As we desire to live an impactful life for God's kingdom and pursue a life that reflects that Jesus is our life, there will be certain attitudes and actions that we will want to get rid of. And this leads to the second thing you will want to do if you want Christ to be your life. Number two, consider your body dead to sin. Look at verses five to seven, where Paul says, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. This is when Paul begins to correct the recipients of his letter. Since we as believers share in Christ's death and resurrection, have our lives hidden with him, and will one day be revealed uh, with him in glory, there needs to be a difference in our attitudes and our actions. You see, there must be a funeral to the old life since you have new life in you. If you want to understand what Paul is instructing us to do here, look carefully what he says. He tells us to consider, which means to reckon, to think, or to conclude he is calling upon us to do something with our minds, and that is to reckon the physical members of our body to be dead to the following sins listed. These are sins that we once allowed our bodies to be very much alive to, but now must decide that the members of our body are not slaves to sin any longer, for our body now has a new master, and that new master is Jesus Christ. The first set 
of sins, uh, we must reckon our bodies dead to our sexual sins. He first lists immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desire. The Greek word that is translated immorality is porneia, where we get our English word pornography. But porneia is a general term for sexual immorality of any kind. It is speaking of any sexual activity outside the marriage bond between a man and a woman. The next sin listed under the category of sexual sin is impurity. This refers to anything that is unclean, unwholesome, or corrupting. Another word to describe this is filthiness. This sin is done mainly on the inside of a person. It occurs in the mind of us all, and it includes those thoughts and images that are illicit and immoral. In Matthew 5.28, Jesus instructs, Everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The next two sins listed are passion and evil desire. Passion speaks of illicit sexual passion, and evil desire is referring to uncontrolled sexual lust. These have to do with dwelling on immoral or impure things. These also occur in the mind. The internet is full of immoral and impure things. I hope that's not a shock to you. The internet is full of immoral and impure things. You could be innocently looking to purchase an item, and then, boom, an advertisement pops up that begins to arouse your passion and evil desire. It is at this time when you need to reason with yourself and remind yourself that these temptations no longer control you. The members of your body are dead to these sins, and this includes your brain. The Holy Spirit gives you the power to turn away. However, the longer you linger, the harder it will be to consider your body as dead to these temptations. The final sin listed here is greed or covetousness. The Greek word translated greed is the word have attached to the word more. Greed literally speaks of a desire to have more and more and more. There can never be enough for someone who is greedy. Greed is at the root of the first sins listed here because all of these sins speak of the craving for something more than what a person has and something more than what we should have. A person governed by greed places selfish, evil desires above obedience to God, which is idolatry. And Paul next gives us a reason why a believer should consider their body as dead to these sins. In verse 6, he says, For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come to the sons of disobedience. He goes on to remind them that they formerly lived in these sins when he states in verse 7, that in them you also walked when you were living in them. This was the pattern of their lives before salvation, but now they stand in Christ's righteousness. So why should they return to their old, meaningless, empty way of life? Sadly, these sins are so prevalent among Christians because they are often secret sins. They are done behind closed doors and often are entertained only in the mind. In order to consider them as dead, a believer must reason with themselves that their bodies are no longer controlled by these sins. Their bodies are dead to these sins. The believer needs to recognize that this battle is in their minds 
and their minds need to be filled with truth to win that battle. Galatians 5.16 instructs us to walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. We need to be filled with the Spirit to have the power to consider our bodies as dead to these secret sins. Memorizing Scripture, prayer, and accountability with fellow believers have been a huge help for me personally. There's a third thing we must do if we want to live like Christ is our life. So number three, put aside sins associated with your old self. Put aside sins associated with your old self. Listen to what Paul says in verse 8. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. When he starts with but now, Paul is transitioning from the old life of self to the new life found in Christ. To put aside is something we do when we come home from a long day at work with dirty clothes on. Hopefully, bachelors, hopefully, we do not take off our clothes and put them back into the closet. No, we lay them aside. We put them aside to be laundered later. It's the same way that we are to put aside these harmful attitudes and actions. We should not continue to wear, wear these old harmful and selfish ways. God calls us to get rid of these as we relate to others and represent Him to the world. Let's take a look at some of these. Anger speaks of a deep, smoldering, resentful bitterness. Wrath refers to sudden outbursts of anger. Malice speaks of the evil intentions in our heart when we wish evil upon another person. Slander occurs when we speak poorly about another person not in our presence when we may exaggerate or even lie to harm them when they are not able to defend themselves. The Greek word for slander is blasphemia and is translated as blasphemy when speaking about God. And in a way, we are blaspheming God when we speak slanderously about another person that has been created in the image of God. Abusive speech can be translated as filthy language. These are words that are obscene and are intended to hurt others. All of these sins are relational. We must be in relation with others for any of these to occur. They are all rooted in selfishness. We get angry and wrathful when someone dares to get in our way and make us change direction. Malice builds up inside of us when we see someone else get the recognition that we feel we deserve. We may speak slanderously about this person because they didn't deserve this recognition. We use abusive speech when someone is not living according to our agenda. Can you see that these all come from love of self? Living this way is tiresome and weighs us down. Paul's next instruction to the Colossians and us is found in verse 9. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Lying is so easy for us to do. It is, a, it is a common occurrence in the life of an unbeliever. I remember when I was a high school teacher and walking through the hallway and seeing a young lady and a young man in this deep conversation. Some reason I stopped, I didn't know them, but I stopped and I looked at her and I said, well, I don't know if I would really believe him because you know 
high school boys lie. And she looked at him, hit him in the arm, and the guy kind of gave me a sheepish grin. Yeah, you're kind of right. And, uh, but what I didn't tell her was high school girls also lie. What I didn't tell her was we all lie. We all lie. There's always been times that we lie. And, ne- and lying will never stop with one lie. You'll have to lie to cover up that lie. And then you'll begin to lie to yourself to make you, you, you feel okay about that lie. But just like the sins previously listed, lying makes life tiresome and weighs you down. Paul wants us to be careful in how we speak to and about others in our attitude and in our speech. The reason he tells us this is because, verse 9, we have laid aside our old self with its evil practices, and verse 10, and have put on the new self who is being renewed. Laid aside is in the aorist tense in the Greek, which lets us know that Paul is viewing this as a past action that has already been completed. All of us who have believed in Jesus have already laid aside our old self at the moment of our salvation. When we become regenerate or born again, our old self, which is the unregenerate and sinful self, is replaced with the new self. It was at our conversion that our old self was reckoned by God to have died. At that moment, we laid aside our old self and put on the new self, which is our new identity in Christ. This is a legal transaction that shows when Christ died, all believers died with him. The old self is like that old set of clothes that you used to love to wear. I'm sure they're still at your mom and dad's house. If you're, you're, you're my age, my mom may be coming clean all of those out. But now they no longer fit you because you have grown. They're too small for you. And you have new clothes that fit you much better. As a believer, the old self has been put to death and no longer fits you. You need to lay aside the sinful attitudes and actions because they no longer fit you. You could try and squeeze yourself back into those old clothes, but they would be very uncomfortable for you to wear and probably you'd look pretty silly. When we as believers put on uncontrolled temper, fits of rage, verbal abuse, malicious behavior, and hurtful, deceptive speech, we should feel uncomfortable living this way. This should not fit the pattern of our lives if we desire to have Christ be our life. We need new clothes. And fortunately, Paul tells us about that next. Excuse me. <coughs> so if you want Christ to be your life, number four, put on the virtues of the new self. Paul begins his instruction on putting the new self on the new self in verses 10 and 11. And have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man. But Christ is all and in all. Once again, Paul uses the aorist tense for have put on, reminding us that this is a past action that has been completed. This is a legal statement of having put on the new self, which occurred at salvation. When we are saved, we are clothed with Christ's righteousness. His righteousness is the new clothing that we believers are given to wear. 
Our new self is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Explaining this passage, John MacArthur states, being renewed refers to being, in new, being new in quality. This is a new quality of life that never before existed. Unlike the ever-decaying, depraved nature, the new self is continually being renewed by God. According to Paul's words here in verse 10, our new nature is being renewed to a true knowledge. The Greek word for true knowledge is epinosis and refers to a deep, full recognition of truth about God. The true knowledge should conform the believer to the image of the one who created him. This should be a continual renewal or refreshing which believers become more and more like Christ. That is why it is important for us to continue to seek a deeper knowledge of God. As we know more and more about who He is and all that He has done for us in the gospel, we will be transformed into the person that He wants us to be. The renewal of our new self in Christ puts off any man-made distinctions among people. Look at Paul's language in verse 11. Greek and Jew represent national distinctions. Circumcised and uncircumcised represent nas- uh, I'm sorry, religious distinctions. Barbarians and Scythians represent cultural distinctions. And slave or free man represent economic and social distinctions. The reason that the distinctions can be put off is because Christ is, in, is all and in all. Normal man-made distinctions are overruled by one's union in Christ. And I love this about Christianity. In Christ, we are all equals. There are no distinctions. I remember when my wife and I were, uh, went to an uh, adoption a celebration at a Korean church. And during this, the worship time, we sang a very familiar hymn to us. The con- but the congregation sang in Korean. And even though I did not understand the language, I was so moved during that worship time because I knew the words that they were singing. And, you know, I didn't know any of them personally, but we had a kinship there because of Christ. And I'm sure all of you have experienced this in some, some time in your life when you have just met somebody and yet you feel like I've known this person my whole life because of the kinship we have in Christ. And this is because Christ is all and in all. This is another way of saying Christ is is our life. Paul begins his next section on the things a believer needs to put on, reminding his readers of some important truths. In verse 12, he says, So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, all believers have been chosen of God. In Ephesians 1.4, he tells us that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Believers should be blown away by this fact. God chose you for salvation. This should make us incredibly thankful and appreciative of God's love for us. Paul next states that believers are holy and beloved. Holy means set apart. And in this phrase, it would have an additional meaning of set apart to God. Believers are now set apart for God's purposes and the good works that he has prepared for us to walk in. In Ephesians 2.10, Paul, uh, 
Paul states, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And the great thing about this is that it is not dependent on your goodness or your worthiness. It is all because of God's graciousness that he chose us and makes us holy and usable for his purposes. Have you ever experienced this in your life? You feel called to do a work that God wants you to do, and yet you feel unskilled to do it. But if God is calling you to do this work, Hebrews 13.21 tells us that Jesus, our Lord, will equip you in every good thing to do his will. In other words, if he calls you to do something, he will equip you to do that good work. He has set you apart to do his good work. That is what it means to say that we are holy. Beloved is an incredible thing to be called. Another way of stating this is that we are dearly loved by God himself. Romans 5.8 tells us, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is a well-known and often stated verse, but don't let that take away from the content of the verse. An unbeliever may think that they have to get their life right before they can go to God and that God will accept them then. But this verse tells us that even when we were rebellious sinners, Christ died for us. And it is because of God's love for us that Christ died for us. Remember, it is not because of your loveliness that God chooses you. It is out of his gracious, unmerited favor towards you. Believers are dearly loved by God, and that is why Paul refers to us as beloved. These reminders set us up perfectly to receive his instruction regarding the things we should clothe ourselves with. Because we are chosen by God, because we are set apart for his good works, and because we are dearly loved by God, we should want to put on the new clothes that he provides for us. Paul instructs us to take off the old, tattered, heavy clothes, dirty clothes that we used to wear before we were saved. But he doesn't want us to walk around naked. No. So he gives us some new clothes. And these new clothes are specially designed for you to wear. They have freedom of movement. They are light. Um, what do we call that? Air that, that are breathing. They breathe for you so you don't just sweat in them. Okay, so these clothes will help you be equipped for every good work that God has for us. Look at verse 12. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. A heart of compassion speaks of a deep sensitivity to the needs and sorrows of others. In order to fulfill this, believers need to be outward focused. If we are focused on ourselves and the difficulties we are experiencing, it will be very difficult for us to see the needs of others. I was recently teaching in our college and career, and the topic came up that God will supply all believers' needs. And the Holy Spirit just brought to my mind the many times that we as a church have taken up collections to send to other believers in the world. And I realized that when we do this, God is using us to fulfill His promise to supply for the needs of the believers there. I love how our mission team finds local churches or missionaries to send our funds to. 
This ensures that our funds will be used to supply the needs for those in that area. I also love how our agape team operates. A need is brought to us, usually through one of our care group leaders, and the team discusses the need. We on the team all have different strengths and areas of expertise, and good inquiries arise to verify the need and the amount to be distributed. Each man on the team has a heart of compassion for the needs and sorrows of others. The Agape Fund is supported by all of you in our congregation. This reveals that you have a heart of compassion as you give financially to support the needs of those in our church and beyond. In the last calendar year, you have given a little over $126,000 into the Agape Fund. And the Agape team has been able to distribute a little bit over that amount during that same time. This year, you will be able to show your heart of compassion and give to the Lord in our Gifts for Jesus offering and support the Prince of Peace for Pakistan project. The word kindness that you see in verse 12 can be defined as moral goodness, uprightness, gentleness, generosity, and graciousness. It is listed as a a characteristic of true love in 1 Corinthians 13, and one of the fruits of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5. It is closely related to compassion and speaks of being gracious to others. The Good Samaritan is a great uh, example of kindness found in the Scriptures. Kindness allows you to be gentle and generous to the needy. When we show mercy to others by not giving them the evil things they deserve, we are showing kindness to them. Now, youth groupers, my favorite song to sing in youth group is Micah 6, 8. And part of the verse instructs us to love mercy. And I like, as we sing our songs in youth group, I, I always pause and ask them a question about the song because I don't just want us to sing words that we don't think about. So in Micah 6, 8, I say, well, what do you think it means to love mercy? Well, in order to love mercy, to show mercy, it implies that you've been wronged. And Bob pointed out, well, you shouldn't love being wronged, but love the opportunity to show mercy by being wronged. When we do this, we are showing kindness. The next is humility. Humility is the personal quality of being free from arrogance and pride and having an accurate estimate of one's worth. Do you see how humility is freeing you? It's taking off these heavy weighted things, sins that we have, and it's freeing you by being humble. Jesus Christ lived a life of humility and elevated this life, lifestyle to a virtue in the, in the church. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5.5 5, to clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In Philippians 2.3, Paul instructs us, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Humility is the antidote for love of self. Gentleness is the quality of being meek and mild. It is listed as one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. The opposite of gentleness is a harsh and proud wickedness that insists on immediate self-vindication. Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, 
uh, that we covered in Sunday school last year, speaks on the gentleness of Christ. He says that the Greek word translated gentle occurs just three other times in the New Testament. In the beatitude that the meek will inherit the earth, in the prophecy of Matthew 21 that Jesus the King is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, and in Peter's encouragement to wives to nurture more than any, anything else the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Meek, humble, gentle. Jesus is not trigger happy, not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. So we as believers in Christ cannot be trigger happy. We cannot be harsh or reactionary or easily exasperated. We need to be understanding so we can be used by God. Galatians 6.1 tells us, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. We need to have a spirit of gentleness to be able to help restore a stumbling brother. Patience is the next virtue that we are to put on. Patience is endurance, steadfastness, long-suffering, and forbearance. Patience is one of the fruits of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5. It speaks of active endurance of frustrations without giving way to anger. Christians should have patience toward rebellious, stubborn, foolish, and unteachable people. It helps me when I think, there, but for the grace of God go I. I would be that way. I would be stubborn and foolish and unteachable apart from the saving work and transformation of God in my life. I would be, the, I'd be just like that. And 2 Peter 3.9 tells us, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God has been so patient with me and is instructing me to be patient with others. And if you have not come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior yet, know that he does not wish for you to perish. He wants you to come to him and receive the salvation that he freely gives to all that come to him. In verse 13, Paul begins to give us the motivation and power to be able to put on these virtues, saying, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Bearing with one another implies that something has occurred that we need to bear. Bearing with one another means to endure and to hold on. One must have patience if they're able to bear with others. This is one of the characteristics of true love because love bears all things. Believers are to bear with one another or put up with each other's inconsistencies and irritations. Forgiving each other is a hallmark of what it means to be a Christian. Believers need to be known by their ability to forgive. Any complaint or grievance you have against someone always needs to be weighed against all that you have been forgiven in Christ. We are to forgive just as the Lord forgave us. This is a repeated theme Paul instructs to believers. Put away, put away these negative, 
hateful attitudes that emanate from selfishness and put on kind, tender-heartedness that leads to forgiveness. In verse 14, he says, Beyond the, all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Love is the most important quality that a believer can have. It is the quality that holds all the previous characteristics together. It is impossible to have compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, or patience if you do not possess love. In the great love chapter found in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul tells us that we have, if we have great giftedness in preaching and knowledge, if we have mountain-moving faith, if we give to the poor and even sacrifice our own life, if we do not have love, it means nothing. Love is unselfish and loyal and desires the best for another, even at the cost of oneself at times. When my wife and I do premarital counseling with others, we emphasize the point that when you say, I love you, you're committing to dying to yourself for the benefit of your spouse. On the day of your wedding, it's very easy to say, I love you. But in the following years, when your selfish desires come against this type of sacrificial love, your true love will be measured. Love is the perfect bond of unity because it desires the best for others. When we desire the best for our brothers and sisters at church, we prefer them above ourselves, and unity is the result. Philippians 2.3 states, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Unity thrives in the environment of love. Now, none of us will be in any kind of frame of mind to be loving and kind and forgiving toward others if our hearts are in turmoil. Paul knows this, which is why he says what he says next. Number five, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. In verse 15, Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. The peace of Christ is an incredible thing to possess. We cannot comprehend the peace of Christ. It is beyond comprehension because it is too massive and all-encompassing. It is the ability to have a calm sense of tranquility in the midst of tribulation. It is the ability to experience ease and rest and remain hopeful no matter what the circumstances. By starting the verse with let, Paul is stating that we already have this peace, but we need to allow it to rule in our hearts. The word rule literally means to be in control of someone's activity by making a decision. Umpires and referees are paid to do this in athletic contests. So when the peace of Christ controls how we interpret and respond to life, we will want to have unity with our fellow believers. You see, in Christ, when Christ is our life, his peace, not our circumstances, becomes the determining factor in our attitudes and our actions. And this will lead us to be thankful since we are able to have peace because we know that God is in control. But how can we have this kind of peace and thankfulness ruling in our hearts? There's only one way. 
Which leads us to the sixth thing we must do if we want to make sure that Jesus is our life. Number six, let the gospel of Christ dwell richly within you. Observe what Paul says in verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. At this time, let me channel my inner Jonathan Jones and read this verse again just at the beginning. Close your eyes. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Paul again uses the word let to begin this phrase. We have the word of Christ already, but now we must let it richly dwell in us. The word of Christ is the gospel. If you have been at Cornerstone for any amount of time, you will know we are all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We love the gospel and the transforming power it has in our lives. The word of Christ includes the teachings of Christ about our sin, his death and resurrection and our salvation. It is his message about love, grace, mercy and salvation for us as sinners. It is a revelation about God he brought into the world through the spirit-inspired writers of all scripture. So in essence, the word of Christ can include scripture, any scripture found in the Bible. The word richly speaks of abundant supply. It, it implies extravagance. I love how the Apostle Paul uses these words of overabundance in his letters. Our God is not a stingy God who only barely supplies what we need. No, he is an extravagant God who lavishes us with overabundance. Now, why does he do this? Well, he wants us to overflow with his provision so it can flow into the lives of those around us. What an abundant God, loving God we have to be able to do this. And the word dwell means to live in or to be at home. God wants his word to be at home in our heart and our mind. And we allow this to happen by studying the word and meditating on the word and applying the word to our lives. Here at Cornerstone, we offer many avenues uh, we, we allow many avenues for the word of Christ to be consumed. Our men's and women's Bible studies, Sunday school offerings for children and adults, Man Forum, Awana, College and Career, our Sunday morning service, and Care Group are all places where you can be taught the word of God and allow it to be at home in you. And there also needs to be a time of personal reading, meditation, prayer, and application is much more than just head knowledge. The word of Christ must be lived out in your life for it to live in you. And when we let the word of Christ dwell in us in this way, it shouldn't stay inside of us. Paul goes on to tell us with all wisdom in Christ, we are to teach and admonish one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Teaching is instructional and admonishing is warning. When we worship together, can you see how we teach and admonish one another? When you listen to worship music, do you see how it is teaching and warning you? And have you ever experienced how worship produces thankfulness in your heart to God? So if you imagine this whole passage as a mountain we've been climbing, we reach the peak of this mountain in verse 17, where we find Paul's final instruction regarding what we must do if we want Jesus 
to be our life. Number seven, do all you do in the name of, G- of the Lord Jesus. In verse 17, Paul sums it all up. He states, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through God, uh, giving thanks through him to God the Father. This verse is for all of us who like messages just to be short and sweet. Okay, just tell me the basics. Okay, Paul is saying, in a nutshell, just do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And you will automatically take off and put on the attributes you need to make Jesus your life. When Paul says, whatever you do in word or deed, he is identifying the full scope of the instructions he has been giving. Paul doesn't want us to have our lives broken up into different compartments where one part of our life belongs to Jesus and other parts don't. No, Paul says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whatever includes when you're at work or school, when you're at home or on the road, when you're preparing a meal or sitting down to eat, it encompasses all of your life, whenever, wherever, whatever you are doing, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And to do all in the name of Jesus is to do the things that Jesus would do. It is to walk in a manner worthy of the calling we have. It is to treat others the way Jesus would treat them and the way Jesus has treated you. We are to be the hands and feet of Jesus if we do all in his name. And we are not to live like this begrudgingly or reluctantly. No, we are to live like this with thankfulness in our hearts to God the Father for all that he has done for us in Christ. And with thankfulness that we are able to serve Jesus in our, with our lives. This can only be done when we are walking in the Spirit. When we are walking in step with the Holy Spirit, His fruit will naturally blossom in our lives. And we will display all the attributes from this passage. I want to state the principle found in Galatians 5.16 again. Walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So it turns out that you don't have to consume 10,000 calories a day like Michael Phelps, nor do you have to engage in a grueling exercise for six hours a day. What you need to do is set your focus on Christ. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you. And then seek to do all that you do in the name of the Lord Jesus giving all the thanks to God for all that he has done in your life. If you do these things, you will be well on your way to be able to say, Jesus Christ is my life. And in Christ, I know you can do this. So let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks for your word. These instructions are really simple, but I just love how you pointed out that we already have the peace of Christ. We already have the word of Christ. We just have to allow it into our lives, into our hearts, and and live by these things and apply these things. I just pray that you'd help us be wise in how we respond and speak to others, that we would be wise and loving for you. Give us opportunities this week to show your love to others. Let this word richly dwell in us so that it will change us into the people that can be used more by you. And we would just pray all these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.